we are to encourage one another. And we do that in two ways. We do it by appealing and exhorting people to practice what they know, and secondly, by comforting and cheering up those who are in the midst of trouble and difficulty. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part 10 of The One Another's. As we close out this series on loving one another, Tom will conclude with two ways our actions and speech are meant to fulfill the command to love one another being truthful, encouraging one another, and admonishing one another. Today, Tom will focus on what it means to admonish one another in love. The question you'll encounter in today's message is this, is there anybody right now with whom you're seriously concerned about their spiritual life that you think is in spiritual danger? Have you ever told them? Have you ever gone to them? What will it take for you to show other believers deep biblical love? Let's join Tom right now with today's message on The Word Unleashed. We are to plead, we're to urge, we're to exhort each other to obey the truth. And although we're all supposed to do this, exhortation is even a spiritual gift that certain Christians have in a greater abundance. Romans chapter 12, verse 8 says there's somebody who has the gift of exhortation, the gift of doing this, of appealing with people to apply what they know and to put it into practice in their lives. But this was the pattern of the early church. Let me just show you how much this work of appealing to people, of urging them, was part of the early life of the church. Turn back to Acts for a moment. Acts chapter 11, verse 23. Barnabas comes to Antioch. And when he arrived, verse 23 says, and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them, to plead with them, to appeal with them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. This was Barnabas' ministry to the church in Antioch, to appeal to them, to plead with them. Chapter 14, verse 22, Paul here with Barnabas, verse 21 says, after they preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and Tyconium and to Antioch. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. How? Encouraging them, pleading with them, appealing to them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is how Paul and Barnabas strengthened the disciples for persecution was by appealing to them. Chapter 15, verse 32. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, appealed to the people and strengthened the brethren. I love this. With a lengthy message. See, it's, it's biblical. It's biblical. This kind of pleading, this kind of appealing, was also at the heart of Paul's ministry. Acts 20. You see it in verse 2. And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much, here's our word, exhortation, much appeals, he came to Greece. 
There are many other biblical examples. I've got a list here in my notes I'm not going to take you through. But what I want you to see is this was at the heart of the ministry of the New Testament. You come to a book like Romans. When Paul finishes the doctrinal section of Romans, what does he say in Romans 12.1? I urge you, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. After the first three chapters of Ephesians and the doctrinal portion of the epistle, he gets to the practical portion, and how does he begin? I implore you, same Greek word, I beg you, I plead with you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. A word of encouragement spoken at the right moment can change a life. You and I can have an eternal impact on the lives of fellow Christians when we speak out of personal concern with the Word of God in humility and patience, appealing to their wills to respond and obey the truth. So in its primary sense, to encourage is to appeal, to plead, to exhort. But there's a second common way we can encourage. Here's the second path encouragement takes, not only appealing, but it can also mean to comfort and to cheer up. To comfort or to cheer up. You can breathe courage into someone's heart by appealing to them to stand strong. You can also do it by comforting them when they find themselves in the midst of trouble. This sense of the word refers to encouraging someone who is dealing with trial and difficulty. This week, I had the opportunity to do a little reading about comforting in the ancient world. It was actually an art form of sorts. There were a number of common recommendations for how to comfort someone, what to tell them to comfort them. Here are just a few, and as you'll see, the list hasn't changed a lot in 2,000 years. Some said, well, just tell somebody your troubles. Recount your troubles to others, and that'll comfort you. Find a diversion like entertainment. Do something else. Get your mind off of it. Fulfill your normal duties and routines. Just keep carrying on, and over time, the pain will go away. Singing, marriage or remarriage, drinking, sleeping, or praying. That last one gets the closest to the truth, doesn't it? Because our only true comfort is found in God. 2 Corinthians 7, 6 Paul refers to God as the God who comforts the depressed. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, he prays, May God comfort, same Greek word as the word we were looking at before, appeal, but used in a different sense. May God comfort your hearts. The only true comfort is from God, and it will only be complete and perfect in heaven. You remember Revelation 21, when God wipes away every tear from every believer's eyes, and there will only then no longer be mourning or crying or pain. But while perfect comfort comes from God, and it will only be perfect in heaven, you and I have the responsibility to provide it here to our fellow Christians. We are to comfort others. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 3. Paul begins his second letter that we have in our Bibles to the Corinthians, and he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. 
Only in God is all comfort. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that. Stop there. Notice those two words, so that. This speaks of purpose. Here's why God comforts us, Paul says. In order that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Notice that God comforts us for this purpose, that we might share what God used to comfort us with others who are going through trials and difficulties as well. Now, what does God primarily use to comfort us? Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, and you'll see it. 1 Thessalonians 4. Here's how God comforts us. In verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, there are a group of people in the church in Thessalonica who are deeply troubled about those who have died and their status and what's going to happen to them. And in verse 13, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. And then he goes on to describe the wonderful reality that Christ is going to return for his own. And after he's done describing that, notice what he says in verse 18. Therefore, in light of the truth I have just set before you, I want you to comfort one another, how? With these words. You see, the only real comfort that God gives us comes to us through the Word of God properly applied. Notice that true comfort in time of loss and trial is found only in the truth. Now, you have to be careful here. There are some Christians who handle the Scripture like a sledgehammer or like a one-size-fits-all band-aid. You know, they show no compassion, no sympathy, They go into the home of a fellow believer who's just lost a loved one and they sort of flippantly throw out a verse as if that's going to solve everything. That's not what we're talking about. It's compelling that when Jesus arrived at the wake for his friend Lazarus, he was moved with compassion on the people and he wept. Weeping with those that weep, listen to me, weeping with those that weep is crucial, but our responsibility doesn't end there. True, lasting comfort doesn't come from simply feeling their pain with them. It comes from the truth about God, about who He is, about His goodness and His wisdom and His greatness and His providence and that this is within His control and that He loves them and cares for them. And He has a plan. So we are to encourage one another. And we do that in two ways. We do it by appealing and exhorting people to practice what they know, and secondly, by comforting and cheering up those who are in the midst of trouble and difficulty. Our conversation with one another must, first of all, be truthful. We must speak the truth with one another. Secondly, we must encourage one another, which includes, as we've seen, both appealing and comforting. The third biblical command concerning our conversation with one another is to admonish one another. Admonish one another. Turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, as Paul concludes his letter, in verse 14 of the 15th chapter, he writes this, And concerning you, my brethren, 
I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Now, understand the context here. From verse 14 through the end of chapter 15, Paul is explaining why he's written to the church in Rome, a church he did not found and a church he's never visited. And so he affirms as he does that, that it's not because he doesn't have confidence in them. In fact, he has full confidence in their spiritual maturity so that they're even able to admonish one another. He assumes that admonition, that admonishing is going to take place where there are committed spiritual believers. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, we're commanded to do it. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Now here we learn the kind of person who especially needs admonishing, the unruly. The Greek word unruly refers to a soldier who was out of line, out of step. And he needs to be warned to get back in step. So what exactly is this responsibility of admonishing? What does it mean to admonish? Well, the Greek word for admonish literally translated means to put or place in the mind. To put or place in the mind. One of the best resources for understanding the Greek language and how words were used in the ancient world writes this. In teaching, which is another Greek word, the primary effect is on the intellect and someone qualified exercises the influence. To admonish, however, describes an effect on the will and it presupposes an opposition which has to be overcome. It seeks to correct the mind to put right what is wrong to improve the spiritual attitude. Now this is a basic educational function. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers are told to raise their children in the admonishing or admonition, as the King James said, of the Lord. It does not mean to punish. Rather, it means through words to instruct to warn and to correct in such a way as to bring a person to repentance. Let me give you a definition. To admonish others is to show them their sin or error, to warn them of the danger, and to appeal to them to repent and to choose the right path. Let me say that again. To admonish others is to show someone his sin or error, to warn him of the danger, and to appeal to him to repent and choose the right path. One powerful picture of this word and how it was not done comes to us from the Old Testament in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 3.13, we read that God spoke to Samuel and he said this to Samuel, I have told Eli that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not admonish them. He didn't show them their sin or error. He didn't warn them of the danger. He didn't appeal to them to repent. It's fascinating that Paul even uses 
this word to describe the essence of his long ministry in Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus. Turn to Acts 20. In Acts 20, verse 31, we read as he speaks to the Ephesian elders, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. By the way, here we learn the mindset with which we are to correct and warn others. It's with tears. You can see Paul doing this, by the way, this admonition in the Corinthian epistles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, he writes, I do not write these things to shame you, but I write them to admonish you as my beloved children. You want to know what admonishment looks like? Read First and Second Corinthians. You get a true picture of exactly what this looks like, where you point out the sin and error, you warn them of the danger, and you urge them to turn from it and get on the right path. This is an important responsibility of church leaders. In 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Paul even refers to church leaders as those who give instruction, is the English word, it's our word admonition, who give warning. But admonishing other Christians isn't just my job and the other elders of this church job, it's your job as well. You see, when a fellow Christian in our lives is in serious doctrinal error or is in sin, Every one of us, listen to me, every one of us without exception is responsible to go to that person to show him from the scripture his sin or his error, to warn him of the danger of staying in on that path, and to appeal to him to repent and to follow the scripture. This is almost a daily duty in our homes. In fact, I told you in Ephesians 6:4, fathers are told to do this constantly with their children with our close friends. When should you admonish someone? When should you do this? Whenever you see spiritual danger ahead for someone you know. Whenever you see spiritual danger ahead for somebody you know. We are so reticent to do this though, aren't we? You see, cultural politeness, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, can not only prevent us from speaking the truth to each other, but it can also keep us from warning someone who is in danger. How many times, let me ask you a penetrating question that I had to ask myself this week, to my shame. How many times have we really been concerned about the spiritual danger another Christian was flirting with? Maybe we talked to our best friend about it. Maybe we talked to our spouse, who is our best friend, or at least mine is, Maybe you talked to somebody else about it, but you didn't bother to go to that person. You said nothing to that person. For 25 years, I've had glaucoma. It runs in my family. I've had more than 100 laser shots to each eye. I've had extensive knife surgery on my right eye. I still take two drops every day to keep from going blind. Eventually, with glaucoma, what happens is the pressure builds up within the eye so greatly that it destroys the optic nerve. It usually starts with your peripheral vision, and then you develop a kind of tunnel vision. And eventually, left untreated, you wake up one morning blind. When I had my last surgery, there was a young man in the room with me who had that very experience. Didn't even know he had glaucoma and woke up one morning blind. This is how sin works as well. 
we dabble in sin. And the effects of it are slow and only show up over time. So we develop a kind of spiritual blindness to our own condition. We rationalize and we justify and we excuse. And then by God's grace, another Christian comes along and puts his arm around us and helps us to see ourselves as God sees us. Helps us bring our sin into clear focus. Listen to Paul Tripp. He writes, personal insight, that is understanding our own sin, is the product of community. I need you in order to really see and know myself. Otherwise, I will listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, and buy into my own delusions. My self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I am going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's Word in front of me. I want you to think right now about your circle of acquaintance and friends, your family. Is there anybody right now that you are seriously concerned about their spiritual life that you think is in spiritual danger? Have you ever told them? Have you ever gone to them? Let me appeal to you as a pastor, as your brother in Christ. Don't leave them alone. It's your job. It's your responsibility before the Lord to go to them and graciously admonish them. Show them the sin of their ways from the Scripture. Show them what God says. Remind them of the danger they face and urge them to turn from it and follow what Christ has commanded. This is our role to one another. I began my message by describing the beginning of and the character of the friendship between John Calvin and William Farrell. It was a friendship that was marked by speaking the truth, by encouraging, comforting, and admonishing. And it was so right to the very end. Shortly before his death, Calvin was unable to write, but he wanted to send a letter to his dear friend, and so he dictated a last letter to Farrell. This is what he wrote. Farewell, best and dearest brother. And since God wills that you should remain the survivor, remember our friendship, which has been useful to the church of God and whose fruits await us in heaven. Do not weary yourself to come to me. I am already breathing with difficulty and expect every hour that my breath will fail me altogether. It is enough that I live and die unto Christ, who is the reward for those who are His in life and in death. I commend you and the brothers who are with you to God. Devotedly yours, John Calvin. May God help us to be friends to one another like that. Speaking the truth in love, appealing, urging, pleading, admonishing, and warning to build one another up, to serve one another.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with the tenth and concluding part of The One and Others. Next time, Tom will bring you a new series, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, how about sharing some final thoughts with us before we go? You know, Bill, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves as we think about the one another's that we studied together, that these things are commanded of us in relationship to all fellow believers. Of course, it starts in our homes with those who know and love us, and then it exhibits itself in our church. We have this responsibility to our brothers and sisters in the church that we belong to. We also have this responsibility to those we interact with face-to-face. But can I just say, I think one of the ways in our day that Christians have forgotten the one another's is in their social media and online presence. Listen, this is just as true in the online world as it is face-to-face. May God enable us to carry out these one another's in every circumstance and venue of our lives to the honor of Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Mm